You're listening to the weekly sermon podcast from Ridgecrest Baptist Church in Springfield, Missouri. To connect with us or learn more, visit us online at ridgecrestbaptist.org. If you will stand with me as we stand on the solid rock of God's word, we have a great, great beginning to the story of Samson. Literally the first chapter of Samson's story is the best one. It goes downhill from here, but what we see in this chapter is potential. And I want you to think about that. That's a key word for us here today. And I'm going to ask you to keep your copy of Scripture open for time's sake. I'm just going to read the last two verses for you. And then as we go back through, I'm going to read most of these verses because they're so important for us to understand not just the story, And I want to make this clear. God has more than a story to tell you this morning. He has some truth to stir you up with, okay? So we're looking for that truth to stir us up. Follow along with me, if you will, in verse 24. And the woman bore a son and called his name Samson. And the young man grew, and the Lord blessed him. And the Spirit of the Lord began to stir him and Mahanadan between Zorah and Eshtael. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are still at work, that as you stirred the hearts of men and women thousands of years ago, as we read here in Judges 13, that you are still stirring today. And as we look at Samson's life and we see the potential that was there, we look out among this room and and in the service before this one. And God, we know there is mighty potential here today. But God, we want to see you move and work. And we pray that your spirit will stir us today. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. The fact of the matter is, the spirit is stirring The reality is that God is at work. It is my conviction, my firm conviction that God is on the move here. That after a long season of COVID, after a a summer of a lot of travel, and if you've done any traveling, the the headache of travel this summer, I, I hope you had a good vacation, but it can be pretty stressful out there. So hopefully you're rested up and ready for a fall semester and all that good stuff. The spirit is stirring But what we want to ask you is this, have you been stirred? God is going to move in our midst, and as we see in the passage here today, we we see God stirring the hearts of his people, and one family in particular. But it is my conviction, and I'm going to sort of stand on this conviction today as I preach to you, that God is at work here in this place, and that there is something that God is stirring your heart to do, and my hope is that today you will begin the journey of faithfulness and obedience to be in that place where the potential that God has for you will be actualized in your life. It's not enough to say, well, I I could do this or I might be able to. I want you to begin to believe in the calling that God has on your life and that he will completely take over your life, your journey and turn that potential into spiritual power. Samson's story truly is a story of potential. And here in the 13th chapter, we begin to realize that God 
called out a man and a woman. We know the man's name, Manoah. We do not know his wife's name, but we know that they were called out to bear a son. Like so many times in the scriptures, we have um, biological barrenness leading to the birth of a child who has potential to do great good for the kingdom of God. Here is exactly the story in Samson. The foundation that chapter 3 gives us for Samson's life is a firm foundation. It is something that it seems like we're going to build on and see a great, great person of faith, kind of like a David or a Joshua or another Moses. We really feel like something's happening here, that we're going to have a great man of God. But most of you know this story. This great man of God was known for his strength, but nothing else much. He, his spirituality is lacking in chapters 14 and following. It's quite a tragic story, but not in this first chapter. One thing that we're going to see is that, that it's not his parents' fault that he went the way that he did. But I believe, and I want you to hear this, I believe that Samson is perhaps the scripture's best illustration of what it means to fall short of one's God-given potential. Now, you know, in school sometimes you may have known a kid that was the first in class and was the smartest kid in grade school, and it just never happened. The potential, the intellectual ability uh, just never seemed to carry over into life and into a fruitful life. And I'm just wondering how many of us, if we were to think about what God began to stir in our hearts when we were first saved, I wonder how many of us would say that we are where we were called to be, that we are doing what God wanted us to do, that we have built on the foundation that uh, was built there by the prayers of our grandparents, our parents, our pastors, our Sunday school teachers. How many of us have built something that God wanted us to build? How many of us have lost our way? It is my conviction that many people in churches today are far less today than what God has called them to be. And we're not here today to to give you a guilt trip and say, well, you know, you ought to feel really bad about it. Get in the altar and cry about it. No, we want you to get in the altar and get where God wants you to be. Don't worry about the years that have gone by. Worry about the years that remain. God has something great for you. I hope to show you that today. Now, I'm just going to warn you, this first point that we're going to go through, it builds the story. And this is important and something to just comment about preaching in general, all right? And our sermon today in particular. When we have a message from the Lord, I want you to know that it needs to flow from the text. In the Old Testament, those messages have to flow through a story. And what we're doing is, is we're seeing what God is speaking through the story. So the point is, you don't need just my ruminations on philosophy or ethics. You need the word of God. But we believe that the power of preaching is, is we take a word from God and we are then able to see how it applies in our life. So what I want to do today is tell you a story about Samson's beginnings. And I want you to begin to look in that story and begin to ask questions about what God is saying to your heart today. The ancient text has application for you today. Let's find it together, all right? But to do that, we've got to see the story. And it begins with this. The Spirit's stirrings here in this text begin in obedience to God's command. Let me show you verses 1 and 2. So go back to the first two verses of chapter 13, and we see a familiar story in verse 1. And the people of Israel again... 
did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord gave them into the hand of the Philistines for 40 years. Now notice who we're introduced to in verse 2. There was a certain man of Zorah of the tribe of the Danites whose name was Manoah. And his wife was barren and had no children. So what we see here in this passage is again the familiar refrain of the children of Israel doing evil again. What's different is, is it's not the Midianites or the Amalekites causing trouble. Now we have the Philistines. Now most of us know that name a little bit better than some of those other tribal names because of this fellow named Goliath. So we know about Philistines. We know that they're kind of the bad guys of the Old Testament. And here we have them introduced. And for 40 years, they brought great pain and suffering upon the people of Israel. Who were the Philistines? We're not quite sure. It's a bit of a mystery. A couple things that we do know about them. They arrived in the promised land about the same time as the Israelites. So what's interesting is the Israelites are coming in uh, from Egypt, as you will. And they're kind of coming in the south and, and coming up. And it seems like the Philistines came from the seas, more to the north. They're probably Greek in origin, Mycenaean, uh, if, you, if you know your... Uh, uh, ancient history. So some of those people, they were, they were removed from their homelands. They came down and they were causing trouble. And here's why. If you remember a few weeks ago, we were talking about the Midianites and their advantage was they had camels, right? Well, the advantage that the Philistines had was iron. So they brought iron weapons uh, into the Holy Land and they had better weapons than the Hebrew people. And thus they were able to persecute them. But Beyond the geopolitical, uh, the metallurgy, uh, the cultural things that we could talk about, here's the deal. Verse 1 tells us that they were an instrument in God's hand to punish God's people because they had lost their way again. Notice that word in verse 1, again. This is like the fourth verse of the same stinking song, okay? God's people have been given deliverance through judges. They've been told what to do, but in a generation they lose it. They lose their way. They lose their faith, and punishment comes. Here we have in verse 2, Manoah. Now, if you listen to his name, you will hear a, a, uh, some, some uh, sounds that sound familiar to Old Testament history. Manoah sounds a lot like another character's name who just happened to have a boat built. You know him? Manoah sounds like Noah. Good deal, good deal. All right, you're following along. You're not asleep yet. Good, good. Manoah and Noah share the same Hebrew word uh, at their root. And, and so what's interesting is there are some comparisons here. Think about Noah. He was a righteous guy in a very unrighteous time, and he was obedient to God. Manoah, uh, the name in Hebrew that is at the form of this, the root of this, is uh, the word for rest. So you have Noah resting in God um, when, when everyone else is kind of going their own way. And Manoah seems to be that kind of person as well. He is a person who is resting and trusting in God. But as he comes into the, the account, what we begin to realize is, is that there is great trouble in the land. The Philistines are dominating. And they will dominate for many, many generations to come. In fact, let me show you something interesting in the text. The text is telling us things about Samson's future because God knows everything. Look at verse 5. For behold, now this is the angel of the Lord speaking to Manoah and his wife. For behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. No razor shall come upon his head, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb, and he shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. Now, I want you to see that word, begin. He will begin. 
When we see Samson first come on the scene with his great strength, we have the idea that this man had what it took in terms of the spirit of the Lord, in terms of physical prowess and power. He is the Hebrew Hercules. He could have done great things for God, but because he was going to sin, all God let him do is begin a process that doesn't get wrapped up until 2 Samuel chapter 5 and following, where David finally defeats the Philistines. It took another several years, maybe a hundred years, for this to happen. But God still used this man, this this very, very troubled man, Samson, to begin a process of delivering God's people. But 40 years is a long time. And keep in mind, by verse 1, the people had been suffering for two generations. They were ready for a deliverer in that day. And God came big time. Here we are told in verses 2 and 3 that this angel of the Lord would come and that she would bear a son. This angel of the Lord came and and had this message about this Nazarite vow that she was to take and her son. And all of that gets kind of confusing. If you want to read more about a Nazarite, look at Numbers chapter 6 and read that verses 1 through 21 later. But ultimately, here's what's going on. If we think about like in church, sometimes we'll dedicate a child to the Lord. Uh, We'll have a dedication Well, imagine that only in a much more formal, kind of a bigger way. A Nazarite vow was a rare thing. It was a big deal. It had a lot to do with not drinking wine, not cutting your hair, all those things, okay? But the key here is, is that Samson was anointed and called out by God. Now, let's talk about why that's really interesting with this family, Manoah and his wife. Now, the family lived 14 miles due west of Jerusalem in a town called Zorah. And that's interesting because we are told also that they are Danites. And I know that, that this is all kind of lost to us today. But remember, the 12 tribes were 12 tribes, and they all had 12 regions in Israel. Well, guess what? This area right outside of Jerusalem is nowhere near where the Danites were supposed to be settled. So what we have here is a, a hint at a refugee situation, that the Philistines have caused so much havoc in the land that Manoah and his wife are not even in their homeland. They've been chased out of their home. They are homeless refugees outside of Jerusalem. God's people have had to, 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 to literally, again, like we've talked about before, they're living in caves, they're living out in the wilderness because they have sinned against God and God is punishing them here through the Philistine threat. Samson is a man that comes to us from an unknown family, driven from their ancestral home, homeless perhaps, and these are desperate times, no doubt. And it would even not surprise me if this couple hadn't even really been praying for a son. I would imagine that a a husband and a wife at a time like this would be like, you know, I don't even know if we want to bring a child into this chaos. But when God comes and says, you will bear a child, they seem to accept that and are obedient to it. And I want you to see verse 8. This is important. As Manoah prays to the Lord, notice his prayer. Oh Lord, please let the man of God whom you sent come again to us and teach us what we are to do with the child who will be born. Now let me back up a little bit. The, The angel of the Lord comes and speaks to Manoah's wife. And so Manoah was like, I'd like to hear this myself. I'm sure he believed his wife, but you know, it's a pretty big deal. He'd kind of like to hear it for himself, and so he prays to the Lord to hear. But I want you to notice, he doesn't just ask to see the miracle, to see the angel, to see the magnificent, like so many of us, I think, are wondering or wanting. We want to see a, a miracle, but let me ask you this. If you saw a miracle, would it change anything? If you saw a miracle today, a, a literal, absolute miracle, n- no doubt about it, would you be more on fire for Jesus tomorrow? That's the question. 
But that's not what he's asking for. He's not asking for a miracle for a miracle's sake. He wants the man of God to teach them what to do with the child. And let me say this to every parent in the room. Pray this prayer. (laughs) Verse 8 is a wonderful prayer for every parent to say to the Lord, Lord, show me what to teach this child. Help me be a good mom, a good dad. That's what we need, and that's exactly. So Manoah's heart comes out here. He could ask for a lot of things, but he asks for the angel of the Lord to teach him how to teach Samson to be a great man. Everything about this is good. But what's interesting is, is that when the angel of the Lord comes again, verse 14, notice what he says. He tells them that the the mom that she must do all that I commanded her to observe it's interesting that that even though we see faithfulness on Manoah's part it really shows that that Samson's mother had to be faithful with the Nazarite vow that she had to keep her end of the bargain she could not drink of the fruit of the vine she could not uh, do those things that would violate the Nazarite vow and she was faithful to do it So you have Manoah wanting to be the leader of the home and know how to teach his son. You have a mother who is faithful to the command of God. And so in this instance, we could extrapolate from that, faithful to Scripture, faithful to what God has revealed. We have a fantastic foundation, the beginnings of something great, faith leading to something beautiful. Everyone's doing what they're called to do. Mom and dad are obedience. The stage is set. Samson. Samson's failures, in my view, have nothing to do with his parents in this instance. The Bible does not give any hints. It seems as though Samson's choices were a part of his rebellious hearts. And I don't know that I want to take this too far, but just let me say this. As parents, do your best to teach your children in the fear and admonition of the Lord. But at some point, you have to realize that your child has to make those choices. We can set the table. We can build the foundation. But every generation has to make a choice to build a foundation, not on what mom and daddy believe, but on the word of God. And our job isn't to build that house. Our job, parents, is to build the foundation. And let me ask you, are you building the foundation? Are you teaching your kids the word? Are you showing them what emotional intelligence looks like? Are you showing them spiritual maturity? Let me ask you, are you building a great foundation for your children? Because even if you do, there's no guarantee. I know some of you don't believe it, but your kids are sinners. You know that, right? Just like you. And, and we have to pray for them and pray that God will guide them. But here we see a mother and a father obedient. Let me just pause for a moment and challenge you in this way. I believe that it's important that when God speaks, we listen. If God is speaking to your heart Sunday after Sunday and you're not listening, that is sin. If God is telling you to move day in and day out in the direction he's called you to go and you don't go, that is sin. I think too many times we think we're okay with God because we're keeping the Ten Commandments, because we're ethical, because we're not lying, stealing, cheating. We're not doing those things that we consider the big bad sins. But the truth is how many of us are sinning in terms of omission? How many of us have missed the opportunity to experience God 
to have this potential actualized in our lives. Listen, it is my belief that God is working, that he is stirring in our midst. But obedience is not just refraining from evil. Obedience is doing what God has called you to do. And I am waiting for the dam to break. I am waiting for the trickle to turn into a flood where we will begin to say that, yes, we're going to be obedient to what the Scriptures teach us, right and wrong, but we're going to listen to the Spirit's voice and we are going to go where He tells us to go. The first step towards experiencing the miracle-working power of God is obedience. The miracles of strength that Samson does exhibit are built upon the faith of a mom and a dad. Their faith makes the miracle possible. And I think that the constant theme we're seeing in Judges is that obedience is the key. That before we're going to see revival, but before we're going to see renewal, we have to be committed to obedience and holiness. That's where I think the people in the Judges, the Israelites in the book of Judges, that's where they missed the boat. They're not being obedient, and thus they're they're not experiencing the blessings. We can't expect God to empower a people who live in disobedience. We cannot come to this place and say, oh yeah, God's going to do something great, but you're not willing to do just the basics in terms of obedience to the word and obedience to your calling. The Spirit stirs in hearts that are obedient. The second point is the Spirit stirrings are stoked by worship. One of the things when I think about stirring, I so often because I was born kind of in the South, I was born in Kentucky, and my friends in Texas tell me that's not South enough. I don't know who decides these things. I don't know. My accent gives me away, though, most of the time as, as someone from the South, and also my love for sweet tea. One of the great abominations I know in the United States of America is the further north you go, they sit down tea in front of you and they say, well, here's some sugar packets to put in it. That is an abomination. That is not how it works. You're supposed to sweeten the tea up front, okay? Don't give me no sweet and low. So just think about it. I, as you think about the, what, what's going on with tea is it's a solution like any other solution. You pour the sugar in and at some point, somebody stirs it. Basically, all I'm telling you is I'm too lazy to stir my own tea is basically what I'm sharing with you. But you have to stir it. And let me just say this. Over the years, for many, many years now, for, gosh, from the very beginning, the Lord gave me this picture that the church is filled with a lot of people who are like that sweet tea that doesn't come sweet. That God, God has poured some sugar into your life, but it's dormant in the bottom, we, we taste the tea at the top, and for it to be sweet, it has to be stirred. And so for many, many Baptists, here's my thought. I don't doubt that the sweetness of salvation is in your soul. I just realize most of the time it's not all that stirred up. It has settled to the bottom, and your life has bitterness in it, not because there's not sweetness in the solution. It's because it's not stirred up. And the question then becomes, how does the sweetness permeate? How do I become sweet in the Lord? Worship. The Spirit's stirrings are stoked, stirred, if you will, by worship. Now let me show you something here in the text. I'm going to read uh, verses 15 through 20 with you. Uh, let's just hear this. Um, and notice how, um, as the book of Hebrews warns us, we can sometimes host angels unaware. And Samson's mom 
uh, assumed that the man who had visited her before was an angel of the Lord. Manoah believed at least, at the very least, that she had met a man of God. We see that in verses 6 and 8. But notice what happens in verse 15. Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, please let us detain you and prepare a young goat for you. So he has come again. And so they're being very hospitable, offering this young goat. And the angel of the Lord said to Manoah, if you detain me, I will not eat of your food. But if you prepare a burnt offering, then offer it to the Lord. For Manoah did not know that he was the angel of the Lord. And I'll just, I want you to notice something. The angel of the Lord there, L-O-R-D, it's the angel of Yahweh. That's important. Some more important things to follow here. Notice this, verse 17. And Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, What is your name so that when your words come true, we may honor you? And the angel of Yahweh said to him, Why do you ask me, seeing it is wonderful? That's a key, key word According to Isaiah 60, one of the names of the Messiah is wonderful. If not wonderful counselor, but certainly wonderful. So Manoah took the young goat with the grain offering and offered it on the rock to the Lord, to the one who works wonders. And Manoah and his wife were watching. And when the flame went up toward heaven from the altar, the angel of the Lord went up in the flame of the altar. Now Manoah and his wife were watching, and they fell on their faces to the ground. This is a moment of faithfulness. There is a, an offering made. There is worship here. And we see God showing up in a big way. A couple things to note in this text, just so you understand why real powerful encounters with God occur in this context. To begin with, we see them being faithful in terms of hospitality. So in the ancient Near East, if I came to your house and I was a stranger, you providing food for me was expected. And if you didn't do that, was, that was considered that you were not, not a good person. You were a very bad person ethically if you didn't do it. So them offering a young goat is what they were supposed to do. But what's interesting is the angel of the Lord says, I don't want to eat it. But if you want to offer it up as an, as an offering, we'll do that. Now, a burnt offering means that, that it's all put on an altar, and it's burnt up, and it's all consumed, and it's a gift to the Lord. And these people, Manoah and his wife, say yes to this. Now, let's pause for a moment, and you, know, you say, okay, a goat. Well, let me tell you the equivalent here. If, if you had a guest in your home, and you went to the bank and got your life savings out and gave it to them as a gift... That's what you see going on here. A young goat would have been their most valuable possession. It would have been their savings. It was food. It was potential milk. It was potential uh, clothing. It was really their savings account. That's what it was. Livestock would have been like a savings account. This poor family, they're refugees. They're not in their homeland. They're in between places. They're, they're probably, this is maybe the only goat they have. They sacrifice it to the Lord. So notice this. Real worship doesn't come cheap. Real worship isn't just giving God your leftovers. Real worship happens when you come to church ready to give God your best. And let me ask you this. When was the last time we came to church ready to give God our best? The Spirit stirs in worship, but that doesn't mean you just come in here and you're like, oh, let's sing a few songs, let's listen to Jeremy yell at us, and then, blah, blah, blah. you know, off to lunch we go. I keep saying this. I hope you guys will start listening. I've been saying it to not just you, but at the churches I've, I've preached at and pastored over the years. What are we doing to prepare for worship? What are we doing to get our hearts ready for Sunday morning? Why are we surprised that we go Sunday morning after Sunday morning after Sunday morning, uh, uh, bored out of our mind, not touched by the word, not touched by the music? Well, blame it on me, blame it on us, or blame it on the fact that we're not preparing to meet God. 
When you're passionate about something, you pour into it. People who are passionate about cars, clean their cars and get them ready and do all those things. People who like to fish, they go to Bass Pro and spend $5 million on a thingy or two. Um, yeah, I don't know. That's not what I do. So, you know, I, I know that guns are expensive. I have a few of them, you know, that I've collected over the years. And I go and look at them like, wow, I mean, so expensive. It's crazy how much money. And people buy them just one after the other. When you're passionate about something, you invest in it. You make it yours. You are proud of what you have. And let me just ask you, when is the last time you had that kind of passion about your relationship with Jesus? Your worship of the Lord. He's a wonderful God, but is your worship of him wonderful? And you see here the fear of worship. And you see it's wonderful because Israel was in desperate need of God to show up, and God does show up. And Manoah realizes it. His wife realizes it. And they are in awe as this offering goes up, and they realize that they have been in the presence of God. Now let me just say this. I believe that the hints are here. The angel of the Lord, the angel of Yahweh, the uh, my name is wonderful. I think this is Jesus. Now, you don't have to agree with me, but this seems to have all the things needed in the Old Testament for it to be an appearance of Christ before the incarnation. And let me just say this. I believe this with all my heart. When we need help from God the most, Jesus shows up. The Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ is what we need in our day and age. And we need to come to worship expecting to experience Jesus because that's what we need. I'm looking out at a world in crisis. Are you? Two places. It's just uncanny. I was thinking about this yesterday in my prayer life. I called a dear friend that was born in Taiwan and just let her know that I was praying for her. It's interesting to me that two places where I've spent quite a bit of time in mission work, Taiwan and Ukraine, one is at war right now, literally. The other is on the brink of war, Taiwan. Two places where I preach the gospel, two places where there are people in churches I love dearly are either in danger or about to enter into danger. The world is a chaotic and dangerous place. We need people who are on fire for Jesus during these days. We need Jesus to show up. We need the wonderful, miracle-working power of God. And we need to quit settling for less. Less than what God has called us to do. Now let me say this. Sometimes our faithful worship comes and goes without much changing. But sometimes worship changes us forever. And so let me say this to you. If you've been coming to church a long time and you're just like, eh, I just don't feel it. It's just not been there. Don't give up. Keep making the sacrifices of praise. Keep making the offerings. Give yourself fully to the Lord and let him show up when he's ready. But be faithful. Don't give up because true worship will lead us to wonders. If we are truly worshiping the Lord, if you say, Pastor, I want to see a miracle. I want to see God move. Well, then be faithful in worship. Don't compromise in your worship. Don't give God something less than your best. I believe that God wants to do something great. But I believe the enemy is giving the church today many reasons to skip worship. He gives us many good reasons to stay home, to stay out of uh, worship and out of the movement of God that he wants to do. But I believe if we are going to win this war for our generation, we're going to push through that, that pull we have toward complacency. We're going to begin to see that a passion for God is what we need desperately. Because ultimately, the Spirit's stirrings 
And finally, our third point, bring the blessings God's people need. Samson's parents never encountered the angel of the Lord again. Verse 21 tells us this was it. Let me say this. We can pray for revival, but let me ask you, if God would just show up once, would that be enough for you? The answer is yes. If we could truly have one revival in our generation, it would shake this world up. I'm not asking you to settle for something less. I'm asking you to pray for something more. We need God to show up. We are in desperate need today. God's people need the Lord to move. And the Lord did move. He moved in a place in the middle of nowhere, Mahanadan, and this, these villages that are mentioned here, Zorah and Ashtayol, they are the middle of nowhere. And yet God was willing to move there. He was going to bless them. He was going to begin to stir them. Verses 24 and 25 tell us this boy Samson could have been the answer. But he wasn't. And he wasn't because of sin. Let me encourage you by saying that God's work cannot be stopped. But let me also warn you, our sin can cause us to miss out on God's work. God will still do what God plans to do. But if you choose to be disobedient, he will do that work through someone else. And I sense that many people in the church today are passing on their blessings to someone else because they are not remaining true to God. The word of God, the holiness of God cannot be compromised in your life. You are called to something more. Samson chose to chase his passions rather than a passion for the Lord. And I think, I sense that this is the issue in the American church today. If I had to put my finger on the pulse of the problem, I would say it is this. In the American church, we chase after our passions but have lost our passion for God. We are good and passionate. We do have hobbies. We do have things that we enjoy doing. And we get passionate about those things. But we need to have a passion for God. Our energies need to be directed in the direction of God. We need to ask him to come and do great things. And we must not compromise. Oh, so many of you in this room, you are so blessed. In the first service, I started with the old hymn, Count Your Blessings, Name Them One by One. I didn't start with that in here because not many of you would maybe know that. It's a hymn I heard as, as a child. Count your blessings, name them one by one. Count your blessings, see what God has done. It's a beautiful hymn. It's a, it's a, it's a hymn that reminds us that your life is immeasurably rich because of God's grace. And I look at this room and see many of you with many years ahead of you and a call of God on your life. And you have been blessed. The foundation has been set. Many of you have faithful parents that led you in the direction of the gospel. Many of you have had wonderful Bible teachers, wonderful student ministry. You have all the tools. The foundation is there. But will you build? You will not build as long as your passions are aimed in the direction of the desires of your heart instead of the desires of God's heart. And the church needs people who have a passion for God. I look out and I see a room full of Samsons. I wrote that a few days ago, and then this morning it occurred to me, whew, that's not a nice thing to say. But I mean it. Every person in here has potential 
to shake the world up for Jesus and be a great, great man or woman for God. And every one of you are going to be tempted to throw it all away for sin. How long does it take, Samson? Look at your Bible if you still have it open. How about one verse? Look at 14.1. One verse. When we see him as an adult, he's chasing women. He's chasing the passions of the flesh. You see that? It took one verse. And some of you came to know Christ and were truly saved, and it took one verse, and you've lost your way. The Old Testament prophets spoke of lamenting the years that the locusts have eaten. But let me say this. The prophets also say the Lord himself, Yahweh, Jesus, can restore the years the locusts have eaten. Instead of continuing to lament what you've lost, why don't you reclaim your heritage and build what God has called you to build? Why don't you become who you are in Christ? Why can't we do this? It's because we are sinners and we are constantly talking ourselves out of what the Spirit is talking us into. Let His voice let his voice have the last word this morning. The spirit is stirring. But will you be stirred? God is moving in this place. But he wants to move you. And that's why we wrap things up with a call to the altar. It's an imperfect thing, but it's a necessary thing. The stories, the theology of Scripture always leads us to action. And I think many of you have been inactive too long. It is time to let the Spirit have control. The Spirit is stirring. Will you be stirred? Thanks for listening. For additional resources, to learn more about us or get connected, visit RidgecrestBaptist.org.